Well, today, and following on from last week, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you haven't done so already, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to continue this greatest of all sermons that Jesus gives, that Jesus gave to the crowds and to his disciples at the beginning of his ministry up in northern Israel, kind of by the Sea of Galilee. And so our scripture reading today is going to pick up with where we will actually include with what we started and talked about last week in verse 17 about this very thing that was part of our questions at the New City Catechism about the law and about the prophets. And then he will um, go into uh, explaining a little bit about this law and teaching of the law. So our scripture reading today is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. And so I invite you to follow along as I read the words of Jesus as he says. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you. Unless heaven, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray together. Father God, this is your word in the very words of our Lord and our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, as your disciples, we want to hear and we want to believe and do and obey what you would call us to do. So help us to do that. God, I I pray that that your spirit will be working to help illuminate this passage in our hearts, in our minds, in our eyes. And God, I pray uh, that you would give me the words uh, to say this morning as well. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So to recap here, Jesus has just kind of uh, announced his perspective on the law. 
He says, I do not do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. We saw this last week. This is a point that is helpful as we look at what happens in the rest of Matthew chapter five. Jesus is not coming to abolish the law. He is coming to fulfill the law. And so then he proceeds from here. It's almost kind of like he's giving this preemptive statement about what he's about to do in the teaching here in the next uh, 30 or 40 verses or so. Because he is beginning what's called what scholars call a series of antitheses. And it begins with the you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so he kind of lays the groundwork at that at the beginning to come and say, by the way, with what I'm about to say, don't think I'm coming to abolish the law. I come to fulfill the law. But Jesus moves now to give to be the teacher of the law or at least the law's original intent. And so I want you to notice kind of what what is happening here at the very beginning of verse 21. And you see it again, like it it happens again in verse 27, which we'll talk about next week. It happens in verse 31, verse 35, verse 38, verse 43. Six different times Jesus kind of utters this phrase. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. You have heard it was said to those in days of old, but I say to you, but I say to you. Some have said that what Jesus is doing here is he's actually criticizing And correcting the Old Testament. That kind of God acted one way in times past, but now he's changed his mind uh, and now he's acting a different way with the coming of Christ. It's it sounds it may sound appealing to some people who have some. uh, Consternation or conflict about making sense of the whole Bible with what's happening, what changes with Jesus is coming. So some have taken that position that, well, Jesus has come and now he's criticizing the Old Testament because a lot of what he quotes when he says, you have heard that it is said, he is quoting Old Testament passages, as we'll see in a moment. But to that, I want to say, no, Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament. The God who Uh, created everything is the same God who will redeem everything. The God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so to those who would say what Jesus is doing here is he's criticizing the Old Testament and he's kind of giving. No, I would say God has not evolved. God has not changed his mind. God has not said, oops, Plan B, I'll send Jesus. The the law in the Old Testament was God's law and it has its purpose. And what Jesus is doing here is he affirms that, but he also says, I'm ushering in a new covenant that fulfills it. So Jesus is, or we put it this way. Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament. Jesus is correcting people's understanding or misunderstanding of the Old Testament. So now where that kind of raises the question, where do these people get this faulty understanding of the intention of the Old Testament? Um, Some people don't need any help. 
<laughs> Actually, most of us don't need any help. We could probably get a faulty understanding of what the scripture uh, teaches anyway. We, can, we all have our ways in which, because of our sinful nature, we want to twist and distort God's word. But for many of the people in Jesus' day, this misunderstanding of the scriptures came from those who taught it to them. This misunderstanding came because of what was being taught or the human traditions that were being added to scripture by the scribes and Pharisees who he just mentioned uh, several verses earlier. And so he uh, is not only is Jesus not criticizing the Old Testament, he's correcting people's misunderstanding of the Old Testament and by implication of what he's doing here, he is criticizing the religious teachers of his day. Now, it's it's true that he elsewhere does say, by the way, they sit in Moses' seat. You don't have to do what the scribes and Pharisees do, uh, what they say, when it aligns with what Moses has said. But he says, don't do what they do because they're they're hypocritical. They added other things that made them uh, hypocrites. So what I, what I want to point out here at the beginning and spending a little bit of time doing this here at the beginning is to point out what what profound thing is happening right here. Jesus, with him saying these these things to criticize the religious leaders of the day, but to affirm the Old Testament, but criti- but to correct people's misunderstanding of it. He's doing this. You have heard it said, but I say to you and don't miss the power of this. Jesus is in saying this, Jesus is claiming to act as the Old Testament scriptures final interpreter. Jesus is the final arbiter of what the revealed scriptures meant. It's a pretty, pretty powerful statement for him to do this in those days. In that day, he says, I'm here to tell you the true meaning and true intent of what the law was going in. He's not subverting it. He's he's kind of adding to it the true heart and the true meaning behind it. Are you with me? And so this is why he prefaces by saying, don't think I've come to abolish this. I'm actually going to kind of drive down deeper into what's there. And this also explains the end of the sermon. Where the crowd is amazed at his teaching, where they say he taught as one who had authority, not as the religious leaders who would just quote Rabbi so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so. Jesus doesn't have to say, uh, you've heard it said, but Rabbi so-and-so says this. Jesus comes and says, you heard it said, but I tell you. Whoa. So. That's helpful for us to keep that in mind as we listen to this first of these antitheses here. Okay, so first he wants to establish what the law is. Here's the first one. What is the law? Verse 21. You shall not murder. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That first part of that is actually a quote from uh, Exodus chapter 20. The rest of it is kind of an accumulation of other verses all throughout the Old Testament. So here, you shall not murder. Now, I should point out that it is not the taking of any life at all that is meant here. Some have missed. Uh, Some have uh, taken it that way, I think mostly because of how the King James translated it 
several hundred years ago. Where it says, you shall not kill. And so they will take from that, you shouldn't take any human life whatsoever. This is what Jesus is saying here. Well, what the uh, passage in Exodus chapter 20. This is not a prohibition against taking all human life or any human life in any and every circumstance. There's different Hebrew words for kill. I think five, five to seven, depending on um, depending on the word. This one here is is the unlawful taking of human life. And it could either be premeditated, but it could be from just uh, utter neglect. Or we would kind of say it in our modern terms, we would say this is murder in the first degree. Or maybe even second degree. So this is not pro uh, this is not a prohibition against war. This is not a prohibition against capital punishment. This is not a prohibition against uh, self-defense. Uh, per se, it's not a pro- it's not prohibiting unpremeditated murder either, or what we would call manslaughter. How do I know this? What evidence will we have? Well, Deuteronomy chapter nineteen, which I think I'm in. Uh, don't have that slide. Deuteronomy chapter nineteen uh, gives instructions to the Israelites about designating certain cities as cities of refuge for someone to flee to. Who? Someone who has accidentally killed somebody else. The, the example is, is so like you're swinging an axe shopping and something and it comes out of your hand and it strikes the other person and it kills them. Is, is that, you know, should that be. Is that murder? No. This person would be. Free to go to one of these cities so as to protect them from somebody who was trying to take revenge on a family member. Okay, so no, this is not a prohibition against murder or taking a human life of any kind at all. So it's not for this this one this term here in particular is for intentional murder that is willful, premeditated, or would be an intentional uh, murder. Um, with with malice, whether the act was premeditated or not, or um, through just just utter abstract ne- uh, neglect. Okay, and so why why so we're focusing here on the law because I want to talk about this a little bit so we can understand what Jesus is countering uh, here. So he so the Old Testament teaching on why. Um, why murder is so taking of another human life is so wrong is usually based in a couple of verses. Um, Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. So man, you are were created in the image of God. And in Deut- or, excuse me, Genesis chapter 9, it says that whoever sheds the blood of a man, by, his, uh, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God values life. Human life. And so the premeditated taking of life is, um, is the law that is given here. So that's the law. Now here, I want to go to focus now on what Jesus' clarification of the law is. So here's the law. Here's the clarification of the law. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is raising the standard of what this idea of murder is. Simply refraining from taking someone's life is not enough. Basically. Taking, refraining from taking someone's life does not meet the standard that's conveyed here. And that's what Jesus is saying. What does it mean by angry with uh, his brother? The word there is for to be angry or to be wrathful. It's related to, related to the word wrath. So the question is, so what's Jesus saying? Are Christians not allowed to feel angry? Is it, is it wrong for Christians to feel angry? The answer to that is, no, this is not a prohibition against anger in any and all forms. For a couple of reasons. One, Jesus himself was angry. One day he's in the synagogue and the scribes and the Pharisees bring in a guy with a weathered hand. On a Sabbath to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Because if you heal on the Sabbath, that's working on the Sabbath. And then gotcha, we got it on something, right? And so they ask him this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? And, uh, or they, they bring the guy with, it with their hand. And Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent in response. And then the... Mark 3 says, and he looked around them at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. You ever picture Jesus being angry? I mean, I've seen a lot of I used to do children's ministry. I used to write a children's ministry curriculum. And so I've been through lots of little depictions and children's storybook Bibles. I've never seen angry Jesus in any of them. Right. But there's several times where Jesus was angry. And what we call this is a righteous indignation. Same could be said when Jesus drove out the money changers in the temple. There's other people too. Moses, for example, when he comes down from Mount Sinai and he's got the two tablets of the law and he comes down and he sees Israel dancing and throwing a party, worshiping a golden calf. And it says that his anger burned and he threw the tablets of stone and broke them. Or what about this? Paul saying uh, these words in Ephesians chapter four. He says, be angry. It's the same Greek word that Jesus is used for Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So anger by itself is not inherently, inherently evil. There is such a thing as a righteous anger. So are Christians allowed to feel angry? Sure, sure. Again, this is not a prohibition against any and all forms of anger. There are justifications for anger, which might explain why some Greek manuscripts have added this word to Jesus here in verse 22. Anyone who is angry with his brother 
If you have the ESV, you can see the little footnote there. Number three, it says in mine. And it says some manuscripts insert this one little Greek word that means without cause or without purpose or purposeless. That comes later in the New Testament. It's probably not original, but what it does kind of suggest is that some people were trying to put this word in here to explain what Jesus meant. Looking at all of the other scriptures that I had just uh, talked about. So those later copiers of the Greek New Testament, they, they're just explaining what Jesus meant. Jesus was not condemning any and all forms of anger. Or anger by itself is not inherently evil. Because if it was, Jesus would have sinned. So what is meant then? I think it's helpful to see, uh, understand this in the whole group of statements that Jesus is saying together here. And he gives three. He says, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council or the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he has three statements he gives there. The first one is obviously internal. It's an emotion or a passion. But the second two are outward manifestations of that internal thing. The first one is a heart thing. Second and third ones are a mouth thing. The second one there is uh, the NIV says anyone who says to his brother Raka, which is an Aramaic term of insult. It means it's related to the word empty. So basically, like you empty head. It's an insult to a person's intelligence. I've seen commentators, some say this, nitwit, blockhead, numbskull, bonehead, um, except, except worse. I mean, if, it, this, if you were to say those kind of words in that day, somebody who would utter those kind of words in that day would be blocked on Twitter today. Like it would be that it would be that offensive and that it's just an offensive type of term. The second one there or the third one that's listed is you fool. It's uh, moros is the, the Greek word there. It's where we get the word moron it means fool. And again, you, uh, there are times when Jesus used that exact word to the scribes and the Pharisees. So there it, it must um, you know, there, there must be kind of a little shades of meaning that are used there because otherwise Jesus would be violating his own teaching. But the overall picture that you get from all of these is um, that these are clearly abusive type of language. Very um, insulting. Or derisive that would come from a heart that has anger. Not talking about feeling emotion or frustration or something like that, uh, or even a kind of a righteous anger, but an anger that's allowed to sit and to dwell and fester and manifest itself in even uttering very harsh and abusive language. One commentator wrote this Raka expresses contempt for a man's head. You stupid. Moros expresses contempt for his heart or his character or you scoundrel. So what does anger mean here? I think it's the desire to destroy somebody 
emotionally for yourself, even if you don't do so physically. And it could be verbally abusive, saying spiteful things about that person. Or maybe looking at them as a whole, it would be standing in superiority over a person. We've just come off of a political year, and I would think that Jesus is probably most grieved about the type of language that would be used back and forth on American to another American, right? So character assassination, right? All that to say this. So for, first one, remember, it's, it's a heart thing that manifests itself, that can manifest itself in mouth things. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what, looking at the whole here, just preventing yourself from killing someone does not mean you're following God's will. Just preventing your, some, yourself from killing someone does not mean you are following God's will. Keeping, keeping your hands off of wringing someone's neck uh, doesn't deserve you any applause or praise, right? Keep, keeping from pulling the trigger or thrusting in an actual knife does not mean you're guiltless of murder, according to God. Because any thoughts, any thoughts or insulting words um, may, lead, may not lead to the ultimate act of murder, yet they are tantamount to murder in God's sight. As John writes in his first letter, chapter 315, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So Jesus is dropping this threshold of crime, the crime of murder in the law. If you think this would be what Jesus would be saying here. If you think that you haven't actually taken someone's life, that you're following the law, you're profoundly mistaken. This is what Jesus says to this crowd of disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You've heard it said this, but I tell you this. So what should we do about that? One, the scripture teaches us that we should be slow to become angry. James writes this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So we need to be slow in becoming angry. Um, And because anger or wrath or resentment or bitterness against another person that leads to thoughts and actions that would assassinate the character of that person... Those things are not characteristic of a disciple of Jesus, as James continues. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. This is interesting because this is just a few verses after he says, be angry, but don't sin. Um, But then he goes on to say, but but you need to put that away. Or as he writes to the Colossians, Colossians chapter three, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. 
So first, Jesus gives the law, thou shalt not murder. And then he gives this clarification of the law. Well, I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, if you utter obscene, derogatory, abusive kind of terms to them, you're in danger, liable to the fire, the hell of fire, it says. But then Jesus goes on to give two examples of an application. I gave a couple of applications for what we need to do. Is we need to put it away from us as, as quick as we can. But, the, but Jesus offers two uh, applications of this. And he tell, does it by telling two stories. And this, uh, I'll be honest, this has bothered me for like a week to really ask myself this question. As I looked at uh, example, this story that he... Uh, the first story he tells in verses 23 and 24, and then the second story he tells in verse 25 and 26. And I thought, wait, how does that connect to what he just said in verse 22? So let me, let me read them. Verse 23. So, okay. And, and that's the part that I got hung up on. So meaning I just explained to you what the true intent of the law is. If you are angry with a brother, you're, you're guilty of murder, okay? So, therefore, this is what I want you to do, he says. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. The context here is of offering the, the, the sacrifices, one of the many sacrifices, like a peace offering and uh, the offerings that would be given at the temple. So kind of basically, this was like an act of worship. This is 80-something miles away, by the way, from where Jesus is. So somebody who's going to the temple in Jerusalem and offering the sacrifices in there, you remember that somebody's got something against you. You need to leave it there. Go and then reconcile and then come back. Jesus is really saying, this is how important this is. Okay? And then the second one, the first, th that first one is involving a brother. This one is involving an accuser. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in other words, settle out of court as quick as possible. So those are the two examples. Here's where it got me kind of hung up. Because it, um, it seems as though he's addressing the issue of anger to his disciples. And it would have seemed to me that he would have said, therefore, if you have something against somebody else. But he doesn't say that. He's, both of these contexts, the ones, the crowd to whom Jesus is speaking, they're the ones who are guilty of wrongdoing. If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, meaning you've done something wrong and they have a claim against you. Same thing for the second one. Who's the one that's in danger of going to prison until every last bit of the debt is, is paid? His hearer, the audience. So do you see what the, the struggle I went? Okay, it seemed to me that it would make more sense that he would say, okay, now if you have something against somebody else, meaning you're angry, then you need to deal with it. The concern here seemed to be the other person's anger. 
some other person's anger. Are you with me? Are you seeing what? Okay, so um, so that kind of bothered me. I was really thinking about that quite a bit, and I was so grateful to finally come along this quote from D.A. Carson's commentary on it. Okay? And let me preface the quote by saying this. The one who initiates the reconciliation in both of these examples here is the one who has wronged the person. Okay? Again, that's not what I would expect. You would think Jesus would be dealing with the hearer's anger. Instead, he seems to be saying to his disciples, you need to consider how you may have angered somebody else. Okay, that's what I wrote down. And then I found this quote. So here it is. D.A. Carson says this. Remarkably, neither illustration deals with your anger, but with your offense that has prompted the brothers or the adversaries rancor. And I went, yes, that's what that's that's it. That's so strange. And so this is what he continues to say. We are more likely to remember when we ourselves have done something against others. You know, then we ourselves have something against others than when we have done something to offend others. How many would show of hands would agree? I think that's a pretty accurate assessment of me. We are more likely to remember when somebody else has wronged us than we are to remember in the ways we have wronged somebody else. We're more likely to remember when we ourselves have something against others than when we have done something to offend others. If we are truly concerned about our anger and hate, we should be no less concerned when we engender them in others. And I, I think I've known these different stories, these, this whole thing for quite some time. I, I never thought of how they connected, and I think that makes sense of how they connected. I think what Jesus is doing here is addressing the ways in which we have wronged other people. Because you would think if it's about your anger and your anger towards somebody else, then you need to do some work of forgiveness. Jesus gets to that. That's later in this Sermon on the Mount. He's going to talk quite a bit about what you need to do to forgive. But I think that this concern about anger is not only a concern about your anger, it's a concern about how you have angered others. And so a couple of things that I wrote down here. If you feel anger towards someone, it is often because they have done something against you. And so you have a charge against them. You have a case against them, right? I think what Jesus is saying here by connecting these two is when you feel anger towards someone who has truly wronged you, you need to, one, let go of that anger immediately, and two, turn it around and examine yourself do a little personal inventory and find out how you have probably offended or angered somebody else. So when you feel angry towards somebody because somebody, person A, has done something against you and you feel that way, Jesus is saying, okay, you got to check your heart. Check your anger here. 
Don't let that swell up and fester. Don't let the sun go down on your anger on that. You need to let that go. But then he's saying, now use that to evaluate. You know what? This person has done me wrong. I've probably done wrong. You know what? And I have. I've done wrong to so-and-so. With me? Jesus says, anger's really, boy, anger's bad. You say anger, insulting words, you're in danger, you're in big danger. You need to be concerned about the ways you have done that. The way you the ways you have, in Carson's word, engendered wrath from somebody else. And he says, you then you need to go and you need to do whatever you need to do to go reconcile. Means breaking, you know, stopping, you know, worship. I mean, Jesus is really kind of heightening up, saying these kind of extreme things. I mean, somebody would say, you mean I got to hike 80 miles back from Jerusalem back here? Did stop? Can't I? I'm right here. Can't I just do the sacrifice? You know, uh, Jesus is saying, no, it's that. It's that important. So if you feel, well, let's say this. If you feel anger towards someone who has not wronged you, well, then you've got a serious heart issue. And I would say if you have anger towards somebody and it's not justified, they have not wronged you in any way, then you need to uh, let go of that immediately. But if you have anger towards someone who has wronged you, you need to use that kind of as a trigger to say, what somebody else has done to me, I probably, I may forgetting, I may... I may not realize it. I've probably engendered that in somebody else. And those are the ones I need to deal with. Are you with me on that? Your feeling of anger then becomes when you feel anger. Again, it's not inherently wrong to feel anger about something. But if you let it fester and rot and get into your heart, it will it will destroy you. And so you need to find out the ways in which other people might be destroyed because of what you have done. Jesus says, I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if someone has something against you, you need to go and reconcile. Find the ways in which you have done something wrong to, in, to engender anger in someone else. And it would, wouldn't be inappropriate to, to close our discussion about how to deal with uh, this anger without, without mentioning the ways in which, or the way in which, we have engendered that anger toward God. Because the word here for anger, the, uh, for wrath, um, is a term that's kind of roughly half and half used for humans in the New Testament. And another half it's used for God. God's wrath or his anger against sin. God's anger and his wrath against rebelling against him. 
So God, so when we think about it, we go, you know what? We've, we've actually engendered wrath against God. Wrath, we've engendered wrath in God against, uh, for, for the sins that we have committed. But here's the thing. God has God has come to make reconciliation with us in Christ. Right? He's the one who was wronged, and yet God comes to human beings. He sends his son Jesus Christ to suffer and die and take that penalty of that wrath in your place. He has a righteous, just, justified anger against us, humanity, who have rebelled against him. And so what he says is, you know what? I'm going to give you a way to be saved from that. Here's my son. So I think that's the first thing that we need to think about when it comes to how do we address the anger that I would feel? Well, stop and think of the ways in which you have um, engendered anger in others, but in the ways in which you have engendered anger in God. And God has satisfied that wrath and that anger in his son so that you could be forgiven and made right with him and have eternal life with him and to have your entire debt completely paid. That's what God has done for you. When you contemplate that, I think it becomes a little bit easier to let go of the ways in which you have been wronged by other people. Would you agree? So, friends, let's, let's evaluate ourselves today and think of the ways in which let's heads, bows, heads bowed and eyes closed. And just check your heart. First, let's ask, do you, do you have anger toward someone? And then ask, is that justified? If the answer is, is no... Friends, I encourage you in the name of Christ, let that go. But if you have feeling of anger towards someone and it is justified, maybe someone has wronged you or harmed you or harmed your character or spread lies or rumors or gossip about you or has betrayed a trust and you have that anger toward them even if it is uh, you feel it may be justified two things let that go give that over to God and then then think I've probably done wrong myself And so even now, if you have 
Something in your mind has come in to say, yes, I have done wrong to another person. And I didn't realize it till just now. Ask for strength right now from God to to do what you need to do to go and reconcile. To say, I have I have been I have wronged you. And all the while, let your courage to do so be fueled by the fact and the truth that God has come to reconcile you to him. And that it cost him his son. Let's pray. Father God. Oh, we are truly overwhelmed with gratitude at the the preciousness of your word that we have before us. What a priceless gift this is that the God of the universe would speak to us and that would deal with the very deepest of problems that we have. God, we thank you. That you would come to address those uh, things in us and to do so with a people who flatly just reject you. God, we're grateful that you would speak to us. Thank you for the words of Jesus who spoke these so long ago and how relevant and real they are to us today. God, help us to put these into practice. Make us aware of Um, the ways in which we have harbored anger and resentment and bitterness and wrath toward someone. And God, help us to remove that. Make us aware of the danger that we're in by harboring that. And God, make us aware of the ways in which we are harming others and endangering others by what we do. Help us to do the work of reconciliation. In the ways and know that you've just you've brought conviction and you've brought faces to to uh, our minds. God, we pray that you help us, that you, by your spirit, give us what we need to follow through in the ways that we need to follow through. So that we can truly be your son's people. That we can follow this greatest of all sermons that Jesus has given us. That we take your good and perfect and holy law that was fulfilled in Christ and that we take it and internalize it and that we do, we do it by the power of your spirit within us. God, do that in us, we ask. In Christ's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen and amen.